Put the fucking mic on. How we doing, folks? It's your boy, DB Barstool Sports Starting Nine, and you are listening to the end of the bench. Scoot your ass down. Welcome to episode 105 of End of the Bench. On this episode, we have another ESPN Sports Center anchor. It is L Duncan. L was a awesome guest. She was great. We talked for about 42 minutes. I'm looking at the time code right now. Actually, 42 minutes. It was awesome. We talked about her career, early career on sports radio. She used to do traffic and like weather updates. It was very weird how she started her career. And then we went into how she worked at Nesson, which is in Boston, and why she left. She actually discussed that about not too long ago on Twitter, but she told us at End of the Bench her story as well and talked about her ESPN career. And, of course, the more important part of her career was the girl-dad movement she started. Talked about how important that segment she wrote, how important it was to her, how hard it was for her to write it, and we talked about what the movement meant to her. And we also talked about some weird interviews she's done in her career, including Kanye West. Yeah, Kanye. Very odd. You are you can also listen to this episode of End of the Bench, the interview with L. Duncan on my YouTube page. You'll be able to see that. And the second part of this podcast, very short today, about on the 15, 20 minutes, talk about the Major League Baseball. It's back. It's officially back. Camp's underway. We'll talk about some teams and what they're looking for for the next 60 games and talk about how important this camp is, the inner squads and how important it is. And we saw Masahiro Tanaka get plunked in the head by a line drive by Giancarlo Stanton. And they talk about how important the whole entire camp is going to be because, well, we'll talk about that in the second part of the podcast. So right now, go enjoy an interview with L. Duncan. Very special guest today. We have another ESPN Sports Center anchor. It's L. Duncan. L. Thank you for coming on. Heck yeah! I'm glad to be here. I'd like to give a quick shout out before we even start the interview. Is that um, we have a mutual friend, Libby Riddick. She's the one who set this thing up. I've yeah. known her for quite some time now, since college, and I keep forgetting to ask her. Do you think you can help me score this interview with her? And I just was like, I need a guest. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity. So yeah. shout out to her. She's the best. I've known, I've known uh, Libby. Her, her parents are great friends with my parents. And she was my first babysitting job. Her parents paid very well for a middle school kid that had no experience. <laughs> um, but I remember Libby and all the snacks that she used to like when she was just a little toddler. And she was just such a little lady. And I'm so proud of the woman she's become. So shout out to Libby. Yeah, she's killing it. She's killing it. Yeah. So I, I'll talk about you in this unbelievably hard industry. I always like to talk to people like yourself and talk about their first experiences. Where, where, where was your start? How did you get there? So I know you worked at a radio station in Atlanta, your first internship. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? I did. It was funny because it was a, um, my mom used to listen to this uh, sports talk radio station called 790 The Zone all the time. And one day she calls me and she's like, yo, they're doing a contest for entertainment reporter. And their last entertainment reporter like ended up getting a job and broadcasting. So like you should go and you should audition. Well, the audition was this like big well to do at like a club. Like it wasn't like a 
a traditional, you come in and meet with someone. Like it was like a whole thing. It was like a search for their entertainment reporter. You had to be on a stage and you had to do all these things. I was so embarrassed and I didn't get it. I came in second place, but it turns out that the girl that did win, despite the fact that she knew, you know, what the commitment was uh, after she won said that she could not do it. She couldn't afford to work for free because it was free. It was not paying job. Um, Right. five days a week. And so she pulled out. So I got a call maybe about a month after I, I lost and they were like, Hey, would you want to do this anyway, even though you didn't win? Wow. And uh, I checked, that's the first of many ego checks. Um, I was 20 years old and I was like, no, absolutely. I'll do it. You know? Uh, so I would, I worked at a hair salon that was right near the radio station. And I worked it out to where I would take my lunch break. I'd run over to the radio station. I would do my hit, which was only like 15 minutes long. And then I would run back uh, to the hair salon and continue to wash hair. And that was my first gig. I did that for about eight or nine months, learned a lot. Didn't really talk much sports. I was the entertainment reporter. Um, but uh, from there, I ended up getting a job in, in hip hop radio. And that was kind of the beginning of, of paying gigs for me. <laughs> It's so funny how things just work out. I've had some situations over the past, you know, I guess what we were talking about before, even when I was in high school, it was just how right time, right place and right time, even if you win or lose. I, yeah. I didn't, I had, it was weird. Like I just, my dad's coworker's cousin was a meteorologist in Tulsa, Oklahoma radio uh, TV station, channel, Tulsa channel eight. And it was like legit right place, right time. The sports department needed somebody to do some work for a couple of weeks. And I, and I was in ninth grade or something like that. And I said, why don't you come down and do something, you know, just learn, learn on the fly, kind of get your foot in the door, see what you, if you really want to do this. And I'm, I'm probably for yourself. I know for me, I it was right from then on being in like a press conference or being on the field with the press pass, you're like, holy crap, I feel like I'm the shit right now. And I just, and I'm also like, I'm with all these people. But I, that's, that's probably when I found out I really wanted to do this stuff. I, was yeah. there a moment in that first internship where the very first job that you said, this is what I want to do? It was funny because I, always, I was always a sports lover and I always knew I wanted to, uh, to do something in sports. And, you know, ESPN was always sort of like this, you know, mythical place that like I would love to work, but I didn't know if I was ever going to be, you know, that quality or caliber of broadcasters because I had grown up watching people like Robin Roberts and I was like, Oh God, I'm not nearly as graceful and intelligent and all those things as Robin Roberts. I don't know if, if I have a place there, but it was funny because it's sort of to your point when I was doing that radio show where I was not getting paid, um, they let me go to Jacksonville, Florida for the Super Bowl at the time. And, um, and I remember they sent me off to go try to get Ben Roethlisberger. It was his rookie year. And, you know, he had sort of taken wow. the, the, right, the league by storm, yeah. if you will. And they're like, go get him. I was like, how the hell do I get Ben Roethlisberger? They're like, figure <laughs> right. it out. You know, like, they're like, you're a girl. Like, use your use your feminine wiles or do whatever you need to do. Go get wow. Ben Roethlisberger. And I was like, oh, God. Okay. So I actually was able to, like, get him to come over and sit down. And he passed by all of these other radio people on Radio Row. And I felt, like, very accomplished. And then maybe, like, an hour later – I kept hearing these rumblings of there was going to be a press conference. There was going to be a press conference involving the Dallas Cowboys. And so I was like, all right, well, I, I'll go. I just want to go and I'll see what they're talking about. Well, so I go in there. I'm one of the first people in there. So I get like really great seats. I mean, my dad was with me. That's how young I was. My dad was with me. Wow. And uh, we're both sitting there. And then out comes, you know, Jerry Jones. And out comes all these people. And then out comes Emmett Smith. I had stumbled into Emmett Smith's retirement press conference. And I was like, and I just remember like, 
there's a hundred cameras everywhere and the emotions and all the, you know, the cameras are flashing. And I was like, this is amazing. Like these are moments I grew up watching Emmett Smith. He's one of the greatest of all times. And now I'm sitting here watching him cry and say that his career is over. And that's really when it hit me. Like I can do this. Like I have the balls to go grab Ben Roethlisberger and make him come talk to me. And I just stumbled into something that I'll remember forever. And I think that's really when, when the, the bug hit me for sure. When I was like, this is, this is my job. Like this could be my job one day, potentially if I was to ever get paid for this to sit right. here and, and watch these legends talk about the game. Thought it was amazing. When you interviewed Ben Roethlisberger, I had like this weird memory of mine. You don't learn how to interview professional athletes. You just, it's like in college, you can interview college athletes. You can interview coaches. You can high school, you can interview high school coaches, players, but you don't, you don't learn how to interview Ben Roethlisberger in school or in college or high school. You just, you got to just go on your, like, I didn't learn. My first interview I did with a professional baseball player was Carlos Correa in the Astros clubhouse in Minnesota. They are blasting music because I can't get any of the audio to actually pick up. They're playing like disco music, Springer's turning it up. And I'm so nervous. And I have all these questions written out. And then I kind of like fumble on the first one. And I have Bregman and Jason, uh, Jake Marisnik and Springer all like roasting my outfit while I'm trying to interview Correa. Yeah. So it's weird because you just don't learn. You got to just go on the fly. And was there like a situation you've ever stumbled into early on in your career where you were just, you're like, holy shit, I just got to do this and not be nervous or whatever like that? Yeah. Well, I bombed. I like, I, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of like, really being prepared so when you do eventually get your opportunity right you can nail it and I um, was doing television at the time and I was working at this news station I was not the sports person I was doing traffic at the news place and but I had told them like I really want to be able to cover you know the Falcons I want to be able to cover other sports I'll do it on my own dime like you don't have to pay me extra but if, if you ever need someone extra to go cover these things let me do it and I kept convincing them that I was ready and I was ready and I was ready right I'm low-key trying to convince myself. So they finally get the call one day and they're like, you're going to go do a live shot at the Braves game. And I was like, great. It was the playoffs. It was a game one of the playoffs. I was super excited. You know, I'm like, the Braves are my team. I'm from Atlanta. I grew up loving the Braves. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm standing here on the field, you know, at Turner Field, like doing a live. Oh my God, Taylor. I was so bad. Like it was so embarrassing because I'd never done a live hit. It was always with sports. I had always done taped packages or, you know, where you could mess up a few times and the beauty of editing would, that was not the case. Editing's amazing, tell, isn't oh, it? Oh God. Yeah. Right. Live is a whole other animal. Right. And I sucked. It was so bad that I've never again asked to do anything live because I was so embarrassed, but not mm-hmm. because I was embarrassed, but because I realized right then, okay, I just showed my ass in front of the whole city <laughs> and I clearly was not as, as, uh, as prepared as I thought I was a little overconfident. So let me go back to the drawing board and really work at my craft better. But when I tell you, like, it was such a humbling moment, it was really bad. No, I've, I've, I've unfortunately had that. It's all, it's like unfortunate, but also fortunate enough that yeah. you're doing this early on in your career or even my career too, where I just, there was, I think a couple of times where in a row I killed like a sit down interview with some group. We were in the club in the du- in the dugout. We're sitting down, talk for seven, eight minutes, killed it. The next one, I'm like, I don't need to prep that much. Right. I got this. Totally fly. It was, I'll, I'll, I'll say, it. I don't even care anymore. Uh, it was Chris Archer in the opposing clubhouse when he was on the Rays. 
I talked to him, said a couple things, turned the mic off. He pulls me aside and says, yo, a lot of those questions, like the information is totally wrong. And I was, and I thought I put my work, like, it was like talking about him and his teammate, uh, Jake Odorizzi, that they were, you know, Odorizzi was this father figure, but they got, they came up at the same time and they're not really like, they're very close, but there was nothing like a big brother, little brother situation. <laughs> and he, and, and he was like, you know what? I didn't want to like show you up, but just next time, just like, and then I saw him like two or three times the same day and he kept busting my balls about it, which was fine. But I, it was, and I did that, and I did that in front of like a lot of hall of fame writers and kind of put embarrassed myself, but I learned that I can't fucking do that ever again. Yeah. I got to just really put my information in and just Absolutely. not. Yeah. You have to just, you know, it's, it's important to, to have those right. humbling moments where you realize, okay, um, my level of preparation didn't exactly meet my confidence level. So let me just, Absolutely. in order to avoid that, right? And I'm sure that ever since then, you have been overly prepared. And that's exactly how I, ever since then, even now, I've done a million live shots. That's all I do is live television. And even now, I make sure that, you know, all my I's are dotted and my T's crossed before I do anything because I keep going right. through that moment where I just showed my ass on television. It's so bad. I mean, if, if you were in my room, I could, I have three or four pieces of paper taped in front of me with yeah. all information about you just so I don't. There you go. Just so you're good. Up. Just so I'm good. So you, you, you leave Atlanta, you decide to leave home and you go to Boston to work for yeah. Nesson. It's a big yeah. step. Nesson on the East Coast is pretty well known, I would yeah. say. Definitely huge in Boston. You're covering mm -hmm. Patriots, Celtics, Red Sox. Um, uh, before we get into the part where why you left, because there has been a history of either players, reporters of color that have had horrible interactions with either fans or just walking down the street. Yeah. Tell me first about the positive side, what you enjoyed most working at Nesson, and tell me like your favorite stories about interviews or maybe experiences like that. Yeah, Boston was so dope for a sports person uh, because I had, again, I had come from Atlanta and I, you know, I'm not going to be the person that piles on Atlanta fandom. I mean, people do like their teams and they are loyal to their teams, but the acumen of sports, like you can go on Atlanta television and like you can be sort of wrong and no one's going to really call you out. The, the, act, the sports acumen in Boston is insane. I mean, it's not just that they love their teams. It's that they know them intimately. Like, they know the history. They know they can name everyone on the roster from top to bottom and what their averages are. and what Like, they know their stuff, and they hold you accountable. And so I knew that the best way for me to grow as a broadcaster is really to just throw myself into a fire. You know, it was like, you're going to go from Atlanta where you can be super wrong and say someone's name wrong, and they'll be like, that's all right, bless your heart to Boston where like, you got to know your stuff. And so that's exactly what they did. I mean, they made me a better, a better broadcaster. Um, I'll never forget. I had just gotten to Boston and uh, it was the middle of winter or it was January, uh, end of January when I got there. And two weeks after I got to Boston, they were going to send me down to spring training for the Red Sox because we were the home of the Red Sox. And I'm nervous because I've heard about, you know, Boston media is tough. Like there are these prickly dudes that know their stuff and like, they don't like newcomers coming in. And mm. that's what I had heard anyway. And so I, I went and uh, I'm just trying to sort of like, I'm just trying to sort of like, you know, be a fly on the wall, soak it in, you know, again, like I hadn't been in tons of scrums. So I was sort of trying to figure that out, when to speak up, like all those things. And for some reason I chose Taylor, despite wanting to be a fly on the wall, to wear the brightest orange dress, maybe in the history of the world. So they opened Neon up the Neon color, right? 
like just for no reason. So they open up the cup. They open up the clubhouse. We all go in or whatever, and right away, David Ortiz looks over at me and goes, "God damn, that's an orange dress." I was like, "Oh my god!" So then everyone's staring at me. I was so humiliated. I was like, "Oh no." Um, but he's great. Like David Ortiz was fantastic. And and the thing is, is that the Boston media, it, they couldn't have been any more different than what how they were characterized. Like I found them to be really great guys who were really welcoming, um, who just really loved, you know, what they were doing and were very knowledgeable and willing to share and talk. And, um, and they made me feel very comfortable right away. The Red Sox, like a lot of the dudes on the Red Sox at the time, David Ross was there. He's the best. I sort of knew Rossi a little bit from the Braves, uh, from covering them <laughs> poorly. Um, and so uh, the, the team was really welcoming. And again, you, you're the home of the Red Sox the same owner that owns the Red Sox also owns Nesson. So there was some, there was, you know, a nice relationship there and an opportunity to get in there and, um, and really get to know those guys. So it was a great, it was so good for, I have no doubt the only reason I was able to make a leap from, you know, doing traffic in 2013 to being on ESPN in 2016 is because of that middle part in Boston. Wow. That's, it's so wild. You know, three years to some people might say for, it might last like, holy crap, but three years is a long time. But just from thinking about traffic, 13, 16, you're doing sports center. It, it yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. Like yeah. it, you don't see that often. Yeah. Now at, at, at Nesson, you left in 2016. Yeah. And you went on to do better things, ESPN, which is, you can't get much better than that. Yeah. You're, you, you said on Twitter the reasoning mm -hmm. why you left Nesson and you saw, an, I guess, an opportunity to speak out because you saw how Boston Red Sox, the Red Sox were um, responding from Torrey Hunter's comments about yeah. his experience in Boston. And there's been Adam Jones over the last couple of years, too. You also talked about that. P.K. Sugam. Right, P.K. Sugam as well. And you went on WEI, which is a local radio station in Boston, best mm -hmm. one there. You went on there and you told your story as well. So if you can kind of just tell me what was the reasoning behind, was it like about, you know, I guess about time to, for you to say something you felt like it was the right time to, I guess it is, but um, maybe you can go dive into, into that whole story. Yeah. I think that uh, I really was inspired by the Red Sox um, and just inspired by the country in general and by, you know, other black and brown people like me who have been, you know, sharing their stories and facing backlash or being vulnerable and opening up about their experiences. And frankly, I've had such a mixed, a really conflicted, just conflicted emotions in general about Boston for the last four years. Because again, as I just said, on the one hand, I met some amazing lifelong friends there, like that are still some of the best friends that I'll ever have in life. And I, I no doubt became a better sports broadcaster because of my time in Boston. And I really enjoyed working at Nesson and they really let me be myself and I got to do so many cool things covering the Boston Marathon going to you know uh, flying on the team charters and covering Red Sox like it was great um but the city itself was was very difficult for me and my husband it was it was it was um it was a huge cultural change to go from Atlanta Georgia which is probably the most diverse major city in the country to going to Boston we had sort of been warned by friends that had lived there gone to Harvard or in a, MIT but I do try not to judge places based on other people's experiences, right? And so I really went in there sort of hopefully optimistic um, about my experience and what it would be there. But it just, 
it wasn't, it was, it was tough. It was, we had a lot of difficulties there. Our friends and family knew about him the entire time. You know, we had friends that were born and raised in Boston that we would talk to about this. Uh, when I left Nesson or when I told Nesson I wanted to leave months before I actually did, I told them that like I could continue to work at Nesson should they be in a different city, but that wasn't exactly possible. Um, and I just felt like it would really be cathartic for me, honestly, to talk about these things. And I knew, I, I'm, listen, I have a thick skin. I know sort of the uh, the reputation of of some Bostonians that they very, uh, they very um, <laughs> ardently opposed to anyone that speaks ill of their city. You know, they do a lot of deferring and saying other places are racist too, or they tell you to prove it. Um, so I knew what I was doing when I sort of inserted myself into that conversation, but I thought that it would be best for me to move on to sort of put that chapter behind me and speak out about it. Um, and I also thought that the city or that the country in general was sort of going through this reckoning and this awakening and that there was no time like the present that like, if there was any time where some of these people in Boston would finally be willing to sort of listen, I was so tired of hearing fans say things about like Tory uh, Hunter or about PK Subban or even when their own, even when Mookie Betts and David Price were like, oh yeah, no, we hear it here. I was so tired of them always acting like it was like a, a drunk, you know, fan or an incident of like a drunk out of control fan. And I was like, honestly, ironically, the only place that I felt like were safe havens were the, the, the sports uh, arenas for me because I was on the right side, right? Like um, outside of those sporting events is when, is when the city sort of had its way with me. And, uh, and a lot, some of it was a lot of it, you know, I felt like was straight up racism. Some of it was just in general, things are just more difficult in Boston, right? Like there's a reason they sort of joke about the term mass holes. Um, and I mean, they call themselves that too. <laughs> they do call uh, themselves that, right. Right. Like, so it's just, again, you go from Georgia where, you know, even if people are smiling through their teeth at you, it's a very polite sort of thing that's happening. People talk to each right. other. Um, and it just felt like everything that we did for the two and a half years we were there was just incredibly difficult. Like every situation, something would happen or some kind of, you know, disagreement with somebody or somebody would be rude. And it just, it was, it just became really overwhelming. So the timing was more about uh, trying to open up a difficult dialogue and also so that I could move on. I can't, I'll never imagine. I can't imagine what you and your husband went through because it's just, it's like, it doesn't matter what your profession is, you know, but just to, just to say that you were always on TV, you're the face of talking about the Red Sox, you're on Nesson. It's like, you know, people are fan favorites to you or not. That's totally fine. But when you have to throw race involved and be racist and have racist remarks or just a joke here and there, it, it, you know, it might, you might let it go once, maybe twice, but when it's repetitive on that, on and on, I don't know how you, I mean, I'm sure you wanted to blow a gasket here and there and kind of say something, but I know sometimes you might have to keep your, unfortunately keep your mouth shut when you're around the fans or you're in the stadium or you're in the arena um for for what's going on now do you think you could have said this three years ago or what probably yeah I probably wouldn't have felt felt comfortable frankly I mean I certainly didn't talk about it when I left Nesson it, it was such a perfect situation for me and that right. it really did look like I was leaving Nesson for ESPN so I sort of was able to ran with having that. Yeah, I ran with it right. because it was like, right. who wants to on their way out of Boston as they're heading into their dream job, 
deal with like what I've been dealing with the last few weeks. Like nobody wants to do that. I wasn't trying right. to blow the ship up on my way out. Like that was right. not, you know, I was glad that we were moving on. We were moving on no matter what, but I was even, you know, happier that I decided to take a gamble and pray that I'd get a job somewhere else. And that before I went too long without a check, I was able to, to find a job somewhere else. And I thought that was really fortunate. Um, but no, I don't think that I probably would have, frankly, because I don't think that three years ago, the Red Sox would have been like, yeah, no, racism's a problem here. Like, I don't think Tory Hunter mm -hmm. probably would have spoke out three years ago. He's right. been sitting on this for a while, right? So I think there's a lot of people that are feeling more comfortable having these conversations now based on where we are as a country. Right, right, right. Um, let's go to you moving on to the mothership. You're at ESPN. You've hit your stride. You hit your goal. Tell me your very first time on SportsCenter. I've asked Michael Leaves the same question and Kevin Connors the same question. Some of them say they, they blacked out. They don't even remember it or they don't even remember who their co-host was. Um, yeah, tell me who your co-host was and your whole experience. Yeah, I remember it was Jay Crawford and uh, Cleveland's Finest. I love Jay Crawford. He's like, if you're going to have a first show and you're nervous as hell, Jay Crawford is like who you, there's maybe like Jay Crawford or David Lloyd or the two guys that you would want to be sitting next to on a desk because Jay, I think, you know, he really just played it very cool the whole time leading up to the show, but I think he could sort of see it on my face right before we were about to go up and he sort of touches my hand. He looks at me at the desk and he's like, it's just television. He's like, it's just television. He's like, <laughs> he's like, it's, it's the yeah. same camera. He's like, it's the same camera that you had before. And you probably sat at the desk before then too. He's like, there's just a couple more people watching. It's just TV. You got it. I was like, all right. So, you know, I did my first break. I, we did our first like segment, our first block. We go to commercial and he was like, see, it's just Easy. TV. Shit. It's not brain surgery. I was like, ah, oh, he was awesome. Um, I have no idea what the hell we talked about, but I do know that like <laughs> he he really oh, put man. me in a in a great yeah. comfortable spot, and that's what a good co-host does. Someone that's a vet like him, that it you know it really was just TV to him at that point. But it was you know I felt like it was like you know my life's purpose all coming mm. to fruition, and I was putting so much stock into this one segment. And he was like, even if you mess the segment up, you're gonna come back tomorrow. Like it's all good. I was you're like, you're good. Okay, you're right. So, yeah, yeah for me, I'd be my makeup would be sweating off my head. Oh, I'd yeah. be just like, I'll be, I'll read my like my my notes a hundred thousand times to still get them wrong. I've I've been through some weird situations, but nothing like that. But I've also heard Michael Eves, I think, said that his co-host was Jay Harris, and he was like, like the best guy to like, oh yeah, legit slow you down. You know, you've done this before. Like he, yep. look, Eves has worked many times, like Al Jazeera, and he's worked on other stuff oh, like yeah. that. But um, your your hero your role model is Robin Roberts. Oh, yeah. I got to say, I would think you and about a million other people the same way. Tell me your experience meeting her and what does she mean to you as a woman in sports as well? Yeah. I mean, she's the representation, right? Like everybody needs right. that North star. They need someone that they can see and say like, wow, if she can do it, like, and then there's a chance that I can do it. So she was always the North star for me being that she was the first black sports center anchor. And, um, actually her father and my grandfather were both Tuskegee airmen together and they were friends. They were both in Tuskegee together at the same time. So my grandmother remembers Robin when she was a little girl running around with her pigtails in Tuskegee, Alabama. She was friends with Robin's mother. So there was always this sort of familiar, connect, familial connection. And then this connection from afar, just being a fan of hers. So uh, I was hosting an NABJ breakfast that she was going to be uh, our sort of esteemed guest, if you will. And me and Eve were hosting it and we were going to interview her. 
Um, but we were like supposed to interview her like 30 minutes into the program. And so I'm just like on this stage and she's right there. And I just keep creepily staring at her. Like I'm pretending to host, but I also just keep trying to like catch eye contact with her. And finally, like Eves was like, are you okay? I was like, I'm no. sorry. I just, I was like, I just, she's right there. So she runs up. She's like, you know what? She runs up and gives me a hug and oh. goes back and sits down. And she was like, well, you know, we'll chat in a minute, but like, let's just get out of the way. I was like, thank you. I love you so much. Oh my God. I'm so I acted like a total fangirl. She couldn't have been more gracious and kind. She was everything everybody told me that she was because sometimes they say, don't meet your heroes. Right. I was just about to ask you yeah. this question. Oh yeah. Does that, uh, that doesn't apply. Hell no. Like everyone had told me, because again, I worked at ESPN with a lot of people that used to work with her and they're like, right. Robin is the epitome. And they're like, and we know good morning America, Robin too. And she has not changed a single bit. And she was amazing. Like she emailed me, like we exchanged emails. I was like, Oh my wow. God, I'm never going to email Robin Roberts. Cause she was probably just being nice and doesn't want me to stalk her. She's emailed me. Um, after girl dad happened, she emailed, uh, I did a piece for good morning America where I talked about how she was one of my heroes and, she right. bought me a manicure pedicure uh, at our at the nail salon that we both end up actually going to randomly. Um, she's just like such a gracious, sweet, kind person, and uh, I'm just so proud of all of her successes. And and again, like even now, she's not stopped being my north star. Like one right. day when she decides she's done with Good Morning America, I'm like, call a sister up. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah, <laughs> no, because it's always it's always a weird thing. That whole saying is don't don't never meet your heroes, and I always get nervous with that because there's a couple of people I have admired my whole life. It's Joe Buck and and uh, Scott and Pelt, Ryan Rosillo. Yeah, I I don't know if I can ever be on that level, but like uh, Ryan Rosillo, cool as hell. Yeah, I I I remember when it was Rosillo and Cannell, and I would while I was applying for jobs as soon as I uh, graduated college for six or seven months. I was at my computer five, six hours a day applying for jobs yep. and watching the simulcast every yep. single day. So it was always, you can meet him. I, I, Oh my God. I would love to. I know he doesn't work for ESPN more. He has on the ringer now, but uh, yeah, that, that'd be unbelievable. But yeah. you know, Robin Roberts must've blew, blew your mind. And, and you mentioned your, your segment you did on girl dad, hashtag girl dad. And that day when he passed away, it was, it's, you know, even now it, it doesn't make sense. Like it still doesn't feel yeah. real like gone. I watched, I just wanted to, I watched that clip you did talking about how you met him and the hashtag girl dad. I've watched that a hundred times and I've cried every single time. <laughs> and then I watched it for the first time since I guess it was in January where it happened fucking started crying again like, yeah I can't, I, like i can't believe this so tell me how you wrote this thing you you wrote this out and you went on national tv this is i think the day he died the day after yeah day after the day after the day after he died uh -huh. tell me how you try to compose yourself and and why did you want to start this trend that took the world by storm yeah, well, I obviously didn't uh, compose myself well, as you saw, I cried too in the piece, but um, I it really just came organically from a conversation I was having with a producer. We were just doing what everyone was doing in that day and days after Kobe died, sort of sharing our Kobe stories, and I told him about that story where I'd met him one time ever, and uh, he was like, you know, you should share that on the show, and I was like, mm. A, I don't want to make it about me. It's not about me. And like, I literally didn't know Kobe. I met him one time. Like, there's all these people on TV right now that know him. Or friends with them or covered him for their entire careers like I don't 
I don't know. And so he went to our, he was a segment producer. He went to our producer and our coordinating producer and was like, Elle has a good story, like a good anecdote. I think you should give her some time to do it. So uh, I told him, I was like, when they asked me to do it, I was like, all right, well, you got to give me like the time to do it. Cause, uh, a lot of times when you do on cam leads and things like that, it's, you know, especially with sports centers, time is of the essence, 20, 30 seconds, like keep it moving. And I was like, if I'm going to tell this story, you gotta give me like a minute 30, you know, which is a long time and like producer talk for me to just be on camera talking. Um, but they did, they were like, all right, you know, and they were like, write it out, you know, and we'll look at it. And I cried the whole time writing it out. So I would sort of walk away, write more of the show, go back to it, write, cry, write more of the show, go back to it. And I did a couple of self edits and then I did what I always do with anything I write, have someone else look at it. And I had my producer look at it, he took a couple of things out that he didn't think were necessary, were redundant. And then we ran with it. And I think, um, yeah, it was, I had no idea it was going to become what it did. I honestly, my genuinely, my only goal, every single show that I do is to have like one memorable thing in the show. You know, I certainly didn't write this thinking like, this will be part of the legacy of Co like I didn't, you know, I just was like, okay, if I can have a, an authentic moment on the show where I sort of share this one account of meeting Kobe, which resonated with me, you know, and really the joy that he had talking about his girls is what stuck with me. It's why I had been so sad for the last 24 hours, just thinking about that. Um, and uh, yeah, and it ended up becoming something really big. I, I honestly, the girl dad was already trending. Um, that next morning. And so I just sort of, you know, sent out a tweet that was like, wow, like, look at these amazing fathers that are doing this and have started this trend um, outside of just, you know, tweeting about your daughters. Like, let me see a picture of you guys with your daughters. Cause I think that would be really great and cathartic and therapeutic for everybody. And then again, and then that blew up. So it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was an overwhelmingly positive response, but also something I did not envision. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was incredible, and I and I've mentioned to a couple of people about that clip in particular that how you wrote it was so fluid, and like when you write your scripts for sports center highlights, it's you know you can notice that was actually you know you're writing it from you know your timeline of each play and everything like that, but this was a story from you, your personal mm -hmm. story. So it was it was I legit like sometimes I would sit back and just watch it. And just, it was very organic and it was very, it was a, extremely from the heart. And I think that's why everyone has a story, right? Yeah. There's a bit, everyone heard a lot of stories, but this one I think resonated with so many people because you only met him one time. Yeah. That's and it. that one time changed, changed you. So yes. it's, that's why I, it, it hit me and a lot of other people a lot harder than I think maybe if it was another story. Yeah, I, th I think so too. I think because it wasn't about him being a basketball player at all. You know, a lot of right. the stories we were hearing. Was, yeah, right. just about being a dad. Like it was, we were literally two people. One was about to be a parent. One was a, a parent to, to, uh, to three um, mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, it was just two people standing in a hallway talking about their children, honestly. And, uh, and I, so I think that people just related to him on that level because we'll never know what it's like to be Kobe Bryant, right? We'll never no. know what it's like to be an icon in that way and to have all the cachet and, uh, and the mm -hmm. legacy that he had, but we all know what it's like to just really love someone and to want to share in that pride and joy and talk to them, talk to a total stranger about them. You know, like I just, I saw Kobe and I was like, that's my dad who would stop anyone anywhere and talk about his girls, you know? So, uh, yeah. So that's why it hit me so hard too. Right. 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 Um, I have a couple more questions before we wrap yeah. up. 
Um, I would love to tell me, tell me your worst and best interviews. I want to say the worst interview, like how did it just explode? Cause I, I love to hear like these, everyone just thinks for some weird reason that all these successful people on television, they just are always successful and they don't have all these wacky weird stories. I love to hear like what you learned from it. Yeah. So I would say probably the most odd interview I ever had was with Kanye West. That was pretty weird. He, uh, Oh Jesus. That's weird. Holy yeah. God. He just is like, he was so, um, he was so all over the place. I mean, it was like, like he was, he was mad at my radio station because how long ago was this? This was, well, this is right after Gold Digger came out. So it was a while ago, right? Like 2006, seven, right? Yeah. Um, And he was mad at my radio station because my radio station was the last radio station in the country to add Gold Digger, right? Which is not our fault. I mean, we had been telling our music director, like, this song is good, add it. This was a solid year later, right? Like the song had been a hit and won a Grammy and done all that. So he, he was mad at our station. So there was that sort of underlying like element. And then on top of that, he's just Kanye. Like he's, he's, he's an eccentric is one way to put it. So he would just put like, it would just, I would ask him something and then he would just be like, he'd be like, yeah, you know, it's just like, it's like your Coke, but not like a Coke, more like a Pepsi. And like Pepsi is what I see when I see the music notes and I see the music, right? And when I see it, it's like her sweater, like that sweater, you wouldn't see that sweater and think it's a sweater. You would think, I would think it's cool in her. And I know you think sweater's warm, but sweater's cool too. I was like, what the are you talking about? I mean, that's literally (laughs) how the whole interview went. I was like, I'd I'd be sweating. I'd be like, I don't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. It was like. Sure. It was so out there. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but shit. it was it was certainly memorable. I mean, I, I certainly will never <laughs> forget me and Kanye West, that's for sure. No, 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 that's that's freaking weird. Um now I know you were on you've are an actress now. You were in a movie <laughs> ride along as a news reporter. You were hanging out with Kevin Hart and Ice Cube. Please yeah. tell me the experience working on that set or just working around a movie set in general. And did you have any interactions with Kevin and Ice and Ice Cube? That was actually Taylor, my second movie set experience because oh, I was shit. also a, I was also a paid extra on Remember the Titans. Yes, I was. Wow. Was my, yeah, yeah. When okay. I was in high school, yeah, I was uh, seventeen, and um, and so I actually got to meet like Denzel Washington, and that was crazy, and Whoa. Ryan Gosling, and yeah. Um, Holy shit. So, yeah, so I was nuts. Uh, That's but cool. yeah, but I had no speaking line, so right. and I got no royalties. So ride along was my true. Like I think I have an IMDb credit for that, which is funny. You do, it's, and that's where I found it. Yeah, it's so random. I know the producer Will Packer. Um, Will's a friend, and he was like, "Hey," he literally called me like, like the day before he needed me, and was like, "Hey, I need a reporter for this scene." I think someone else that he was supposed to be using maybe dropped out last minute. So he was like, can you, can you come and like, just be a reporter? You'll have like two, three lines. You will be reporting from the scene of a fire. I was like, all right. I mean, that's what I do for a living. I was on the news. So I was like, that's cool. And it was a night scene, but they had me get there at like one or two o'clock. And that's when I learned the hurry up and wait approach to movies. I mean, I sat in a trailer for probably seven or eight hours, you know, just for two lines. Yeah. wait for two lines just waiting because they had to do i mean my scene was when they blew up the warehouse i don't know if you've ever seen right along oh yeah so they had right so they had to like 
there was a series of things that had to happen before we could get right. to mine. And it was all these really intricate details. And the, the real fire department is there and the fake fire department is there and they have to blow it up and they have one chance to blow it up. Then they have to get my shot right and make sure I'm the, the proper distance away from the fire so that I don't get burned or hurt. And, mm. and I did it probably, I probably did it 10 times. So it was probably like a 12 hour shoot for me. Uh, but I got to, you know, meet Kevin Hart, which was cool. He's crazy. He's the same person in yeah. real life that he is on movies um and uh and yeah and i got a i got a credit and you know what when ride along two came out and there was again additional interest in ride along one i got some nice residual checks and by nice i mean like 300 bucks but for someone that literally hey. had one line it wasn't bad 300 bucks is a nice out nice Hello. night out steakhouse whatever that's not bad <laughs> not bad exactly. um being from atlanta the word and the phrase hot lana do you oh, hate that no ah no, nobody calls it that. It's the worst. It's not Hotlanta. It's ATL, or more properly, you don't say any of the. If you're if you're from Atlanta, you know that you don't really say the T's. So you just say like Atlanta. 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 Okay. Yes. Okay. There is no Hotlanta, and it literally makes me cringe whenever someone whenever someone says Hotlanta or whenever someone says, you know what I love in Atlanta, the varsity, which is the pukiest, most disgusting food in all of Atlanta. Don't talk to me about the varsity. It's awful. It's like going to New York and going to Grace Papaya, like with I'm sure there's other places where you can go right. get really good hot dogs. Like it's just this touristy Frommers thing, and no one eats at the varsity. No hot Lana. God, I'll write Ugh. that down. Don't ever say hot Lana. All right, so two more questions, then we'll wrap yeah. this up. Uh, there's the famous photo of LeBron, CP3, D Wade, and um, so I say Carmelo Anthony, the, the banana boat crew. Yeah. Right? The boys. Give me your banana boat. If it's people you worked with, family, who's on that banana boat with you? Oh, my banana boat. Ooh, okay. So my husband for sure is on the banana boat because he's super fun and dope. And obviously I'm married to him and he's walking by right now too. Good. You're good on my pick, banana good. boat, babe. Don't worry. Um, good pick, good pick. <laughs> <laughs> um, my girl, uh, Sarah Davis, who I worked with in Nesson. She's a, a sports center anchor at TSN in, in Toronto uh, because she's so much fun and I love her. Um, definitely my girl, Jessica, cause she's like six foot one. So she would balance the back. Wait, how many people are in the banana boat crew? Three, four. So and my sister. Nice. And my, wait. Yeah. And my sister. Cause she's the absolute best and super fun and crazy athletic. So if we needed anything done athletic wise, then she'd, right. she'd have us. Yeah. Right, she's a right, firefighter right. too. And a medic. So if anybody oh. got hurt on the banana boat, she could save all of our lives. Boom. Save it right there. And the last one, since my podcast is called the end of the bench, I always give a shout out. I played, I was mostly a bench player in college too. If you can think of your favorite off the bench moment in sports or your favorite bench player in sports, it's very Ooh, specific. That's I a know. really good one. Okay. Hold on. My favorite off the bench player or, or moment, or you can be both. I don't care. Either one. Ooh, shit. My favorite off the bench moment. Um, oh God, that's a good one, Taylor. Um, I should have told you earlier, so you kind of like. No, it's all good. Let me think about it. It'll just take me another. How long is your podcast? Let's take another 10, 15 minutes to think about sure. it. Sure. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know if you were talking to a Bostonian, they'd probably say Scalabrini for sure, right? Like he's absolutely. The, he's, yeah, of yeah, course. Scalabrini, without a doubt. He might be everybody's favorite um, off the bench guy. You know what? When I was playing for the, or when I was sidelining for the Hawks, I was our sideline reporter for a lot of years. And it's hard to call him an off the bench player because he's literally a six man of the year, but the best moments would be when Jamal Crawford would come off the bench in Atlanta and just light the arena up. I mean, oh, he yeah. was 
so much fun. Actually, <laughs> I'm better. There was a player that whose name was Ivan Johnson that played for the Hawks, who was so prickly that he was banned from like a whole ass country. I believe he was not Holy allowed shit. to go into Korea because he was so aggressive. Like he was the definition of an intimidator and agitator, had a mouthful of goals. Like he was a real one, someone that you would not want on any level to piss You're off in a game or on the street. Like he was more than an enforcer. He was like a straight up killer. I'm telling you, he was banned from a whole country for starting a riot. Like he solid, was that solid. kind of guy. And right. he would just come in, like he was, you know, nobody really knew who he was outside of the Hawks, but he would come in and bully ball people and intimidate them. And he was so much fun to watch. It didn't last very long, right? shockingly, but he was so much fun to watch. So I'll go with him. Ivan Johnson. Ivan Johnson. He I'm looks as scary as he is. I'm telling I'm you. I'm going to look him up and I'll let you know if I'm really, I, I'd probably be intimidated. I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm easily intimidated. No, I'm not. Um, I don't you know what I'm saying. Um, well, Thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Um, you are now the third ESPN sports and ranker to come hey. on. And also the second girl to come on. Second straight episode. Second woman ever. I like it. Boom. I got to make Boom. it. Get more ladies involved, Taylor. I like I'm that. I'm trying. That's what I'm trying. I got to mix it together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, um, Ellie, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. for a fantastic fantastic interview um definitely um hopefully we can get her back on that'd be pretty cool actually not gonna lie but let's get into some baseball so baseball's back in the intro i talked about how important it is to have workouts and inner squads but i really didn't mention in the intro about the safety of the coronavirus we've seen players are dropping out david price dropped out mike trout is Worried about it. He's thinking about it. There's rumors about it that he might be leaving and not playing this year. He's got a baby on the way. His mom even tweeted a picture of him rounding the bases with a mask on saying, if my child can wear a mask, you can wear a mask. Realistically, it isn't hard. Wear a mask. Social distance. Wash your hands. Do the best you can. Because you know what? If we as a society, as the public in the United States... If you want sports to come back, you want to watch these baseball players co-play, then we need to do our part. They're doing their best. The safety precautions are doing their best. But there's, there's, it's, I'm looking on my phone right now. It's like the Washington Nationals canceled workouts today as a result. Their Friday coronavirus tests still have not shown up. Sources tell ESPN. That is from Jeff Passens. You have other ones. Here's another tweet from Jeff Passens saying, after positive coronavirus tests among Toronto Blue Jays, Players, a number remained behind in Florida while the rest of the team traveled to Toronto for training camp. Source tell ESPN, the players will remain in Florida for a few days before they are cleared to go back to Canada. It just goes on and on about how a lot of these players, there's positive testing, a lot of them. I think there's 31 positive tests. Um, that's a mix of players and coaching staff over, I think it was like last week. So we'll get into Tanaka's injury, but... Um, 
Look, David Price, he dropped out. He's a dear Dodger Nation after uh, after considerable thought and discussion with my family and the Dodgers. I have decided it's the best interest of my health and my family's health for me to not play the season. I will miss my teammates and will be cheering for them throughout the season and on to the World Series victory. I'm sorry I won't be playing for you this year, but look forward to representing you next year. Stay safe, be well, and be kind, and go Dodgers. Love, David Price. He's not alone. There's a lot of players I feel like they're going to be doing this in particular, dropping out because of family. And it's I think it's totally understandable. Fans are pissed off, of course. Totally makes sense. But for what for what's going on, it's something to really think about. Trust me, these players want to play bad. And guess what? So do we. We want baseball back in the worst way possible. But is it safe? Sean Doolittle, closer for the Nationals, he spoke the truth in a press conference yesterday. This is from um, NBC Sports, NBC4 Sports in Washington. I'm going to play this clip real quick. So it's about him talking about the truth, about what's going on, and how important it is for the public to be safe. I'll play right now. Like bring to mind kind of where we're at um, in our response to this as a country. Like we're trying to bring baseball back in a, in a, during a pandemic that's killed 130,000 people. We're way worse off in a, as a country than where we were in March when we shut this thing down. And like, look at where other developed countries are in their response to this. We haven't done any of the things that other countries have done to bring sports back. Sports are like the reward of a functioning society, uh, a, a functional society. And we're just like trying to just bring it back, even though we've taken none of the steps to have to, to flatten the curve, whatever you want to say to like, we did flatten the curve for a little bit, but we didn't use that time to do anything productive. We just opened back up for Memorial Day. We decided we're done with it. Like, if there aren't sports, it's going to be because people are not wearing masks because the response to this has been so politicized. Like, we need help from the people, from the general public. If they want to watch baseball, like, please wear a mask. Like, social distance. Keep washing your hands. Like, we can't just have virus fatigue and think it's been like, well, it's been four months. Like, we're over it. This has been enough time, right? We've waited long enough. Like, shouldn't sports come back now? No, there's things we have to do in order to bring the stuff back. So, like, and now you want to bring fans back? I mean, I don't know. Is that safe? I'm not a public health expert, but, like, we should probably re- defer to them on some of these issues. Um, so, I, I don't know. I Like, I don't know if it's safe or not. I really don't know. But, like, that doesn't seem like something that um, – I don't know if that feels like a good idea or not. I really – I don't know. Well, there you have it. So, look, is it really safe to bring fans back? Absolutely not. You're not gonna, fans are not going to be in the stands in any sport for over a year. 2021, get your season tickets ready. But he's right. 
as you, as the as a country, we have done a horrible job. I mean, look at this past weekend, July fourth, in Long Island in particular, from where I'm from, Fire Island packed, the beaches packed, all of it packed. I did a very small thing. I was with some family. We were in a big backyard with a pool, but there wasn't a lot of us, and we all did social distancing. And whenever there was a point where we had to cross each other or we were kind of close, we had to go inside, go to the bathroom, whatever. We all put our mask on, and we were very smart about it. But you have a lot of people going to bars and going to restaurants inside and even on the beaches and not wearing masks and not washing your hands all the time. It's our job too. It's not just theirs. Look, you from what I've seen, and you could see in that video clearly, there's no press in those press conferences. There's not one person there. It's all on Zoom. All of it's on Zoom. They're doing interviews online. That's how they're doing it now. They used to do that, you know, the the they still do that where the coach might talk or a player might talk over the phone. And you have an order of what um, each reporter is in a line. And, you know, when your name is called, then you get to talk. They've done that for decades. But now they're doing it on Zoom because of what's going on now. They're doing testing every day. DJ LeMahieu and Louise Sessa got tested positive the other day. Miguel Sano tested positive the other day. So these guys are coming up. Are they going to sick be you know get really sick and die hopefully not but they're catching it early and but this is this is going to be the norm if you haven't understood it now it's going to be like this unfortunately could baseball be canceled because of the coronavirus okay i'm not gonna lie it could unfortunately it, it could it's gonna suck but it could that would stink a lot i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie to you Baseball fans and players have been wanting and praying and working at getting a season back because of labor uh, disagreements between the union and Major League Baseball. And they finally got an agreement with 60 games and all this other minute details, rule changes. Now they're facing another battle is the coronavirus. Doolittle's right. It's not just them. We have to put the work in too. We have to, or nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. Hey, trust me, I'm 25. I want to get out. I want to do stuff. I'm, I want to see friends. I haven't seen a lot of friends lately. I just, I've been trying to do my best. Do I see friends in social distance? Absolutely. We've done that. I went to, I went golfing and we walked the course and, you know, you're, we're the golf course, you're in an open field, so you're not standing next to everybody. You're not standing any you – know, we're so far apart. We're more than six feet. We're 60 feet away from everybody at least at every single time. So it was um, – it sucks, though, but we have to do our part in order for sports to come back. Look, I'm, I'm waiting. July 23rd, I'm waiting. I want the Yankees National Series to be on TV. I want to watch Scherzer versus Cole. I want – not January, July 23rd. Excuse me, damn, January would be a little cold to play baseball outside. July 23rd, 24th. July 23rd, Nationals, Yankees. It's going to be amazing, and I think it's uh, Giants, Dodgers for the second game, and then the other games will play the next day. Dude, I mean, fuck. Today's the, I'm, I'm recording on Monday because July 4th was this past weekend. 
But July 4th on Saturday was supposed to be opening day. Ever, guys remember that? We talked about on the podcast that that was going to be opening day. June 11th was the inter-squad camp spring training thing, and then July 4th will be opening day. It's a symbolic day of Independence Day, American flags going, baseball's back. It would have been awesome, but of course it didn't happen like that. We had July 1st was camping opening up. Now let's go into that. Very excited that we have camp opening up. Very excited. They're doing inter-squads. They're doing the bullpens, the BP. It's honestly how I did baseball during practice. We didn't, we didn't have a spring training. Colleges don't have a spring training. They might have a spring trip where they go to Florida for a week and play five or six games. That might be your so-called spring training, if you want to say. But we we would do, in the beginning of the season, in practice, we would do inter-squads to get us rolling. See live pitching. Do live in-game moments, in-game situations, you know, runs on first and third, one out. What are we doing? Is there a defensive play we're going to be running? Are uh, the base runners going to do you know, delayed steal, getting a pickle, whatever? Uh, we're hitting in situational hitting, hitting runs, um, pitching in certain counts. It's it's a big, it's a huge thing for baseball having these inner squads. And unfortunately, we saw something tragic where Stanton hit a ball. I think with 112, 113 miles an hour off the bat and hit Tanaka in the head. He got up quick. I wouldn't say it was quick, but he got up, and he got out of the hospital. He's got a mild concussion. He's doing okay. And then the next day, the Yankees put out an L screen, which I think they should have done in the beginning. But, you know, when we played college baseball and we had to do these interscards, we never did L screens. We used to do L screens inside when we would do live batting practice, live, um, just live hitting when we would practice inside we have the nets go down we have um, mounds that you can put out and we would have got would put the mound inside of the um of the batting cage have an l screen in there and uh take live pitching that's what we used to do but i think it's definitely a good idea to have the l screen out there pack i saw paxton yesterday pitching the other first day a couple of guys were there judge was hitting off Garrett cole Garrett cole looked nice for the yankees you have other players doing really uh, good things. I'm saying they're getting a lot of work in. But you're also seeing that they're wearing masks. And th- it's very creative how they're making their stadiums into spring training facilities in a way. This, the Red Sox, they turn their suites into locker rooms, two-person locker rooms. It's a genius idea. I saw uh, Michael Chavis gave us a little behind-the-scenes, third baseman, first baseman for the Red Sox. He gave us a behind-the-scenes look of what it looks like. I think it was him and Benatendi, I think. I don't know. But I know it was his video on Instagram and Twitter that he put it out, and it was cool. The suite was in our locker room. It was a great idea. It's a great idea. It's going to be tough, though, guys. It's going to be tough to see. It's going to be tough to manage how baseball is going to be doing this. And basketball, too. All sports. How are they going to maneuver this round? I hope we don't have a second wave and then stop sports again. But at this rate, we might. Unfortunately, at this rate, it might happen because the public, not everyone's doing the job. Not everyone's doing your job. Like Belichick says, do your job. And we got to do it. If Mike Trout can wear a mask, you can wear a mask. 
If Nolan Arenado could wear a mask, if Aaron Judge, Gleyber Torres, Bryce Harper, Max Scherzer, if they can all wear a mask, then you should too. And that's what we're going to get baseball back. That's it. We're going to get baseball back eventually, sports back, but we just got to do our part. I'm excited for baseball. I'm excited to see July 23rd, baseball's back. Fucking let's hope so. I know this was a short podcast segment, segment-wise. Um, just thought, you know, the interview was good enough, so we'll talk a little baseball, and then we'll get on our way, and we'll get another podcast on Friday. So, thanks for listening. Episode 105 of End of the Bench, L. Duncan, Sports Center anchor. To see more clips of her, go on my YouTube page, Taylor Ringgold. Go on my social media and End of the Bench social media. You'll find more clips. And, uh, yeah, share this podcast. Share this episode. It's a good one. Tell your friends. Talk to you guys later. Peace. Man, I just wanna go flex